the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Kimberly McGowan Yim, the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. By the way, let me mention, if you ever run into a case where you suspect that might be going on, there is a national slavery action hotline that you can call. It's 888 888- Three seven three seventy eight eighty eight. That's eight 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 three seven three seventy eight eighty eight. Kim, answer this for me. Some folks eavesdropping on our conversation today might have an understanding that yes, this is going on and it's pretty pathetic and awful and horrible. But how does this affect me directly? How does it affect you directly? I think. Um, I think we. We kind of touched on a few of those things uh, through our phones, through our communities, through um, just we see it going around us. We don't necessarily see it overtly, but it's happening just under our noses. We might be having um, dinner at a restaurant where the people that are serving us um, are slaves, are enslaved and cannot leave. I could be wearing a shirt right now that's made in another country, or for yes. that matter, made in the New York City garment district that was made with slave labor. Yeah. And as you mentioned um, before the break, you know, as, as, as Christians, why should it matter to us? I mean, that is a, that is a great question. And um, I think um, in to answering, to looking at that, to know, I've come to learn that we, we kind of all... Um, as followers of Christ, see that to know God is to know love, right? We say God is love. But I think in the same vein, to know God is to know justice. I mean, he, what I have learned over the last four years is all through Scripture, God calls us, beckons us through, through direct quotes, through his prophets. I mean, you name it all through Scripture, it talks about caring for the oppressed caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the oppressed. Well, and the amazing Um, picture we have, too, I mean, we think about the very observation, what did Christ come to do? In Scripture, we learn he came to set the captives captives free. He came to bring freedom to those that were enslaved. And the imagery that's used there is not by accident. It was imagery that the writers at the time knew the audience, the readers would immediately relate to because they saw pictures of the impact and destruction of slavery all around them. And so the idea of somebody that is that deep in bondage and has such utter hopelessness being a slave, being given sudden release or freedom was such a powerful image that it was even used for us to understand what it meant for Christ to die on the cross, that we might be forgiven and released from the bondage of the slavery of our sin. Talk about powerful images that ought to immediately sort of kind of bring this message to the forefront for every Christian who understands what it is to be forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. 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 What do we do about all this? 
How do we, you, you have a chapter in the book, you bring about a discussion concerning chocolate, and I'm a huge chocolate lover. Anybody that's seen my waistline can certainly nod their head in agreement. Um, we know that there are places in the world, particularly along the Ivory Coast in Africa, that contribute to the vast majority of the cocoa beans that are harvested for the chocolate that we all enjoy. You use that as one example. Share that with our listeners and then take a couple of moments, if you would, please, Kimberly, and just give us a big sort of 30,000-mile-high viewpoint as to what (laughs) we need to be doing to actively engage in bringing to an end the horror that is slavery. Okay, um, in, you know, just so many minutes. Um, uh, the, you mentioned that great point about chocolate, and I think that's one of the, the points that we make in the book, is that everybody, all consumers, have uh, purchasing power. They have consumer power as consumers. So and looking specifically at chocolate, uh, we can begin to redirect our spending and buy fair trade chocolate. And there are, there's divine chocolate, I believe, is in your northern, I mean, is in your neck of the woods. Divine chocolate um, is there. And, and fair trade, uh, and it's, there's, a, there's an, a labeling for that, um, kind of like an organic. There's actually like a, a, a sign, like an image, a black and white image on next to their products on what is fair trade certified. And it's a third-party certification that has done that due diligence to see if it's a clean supply chain. And... So buying fair trade chocolate, redirecting, and I know it's hard. I mean, I've got two small kids who love their chocolate and their candy, but we intentionally redirect our spending to buying fair trade chocolate Um, and fair trade products in general. Uh, Another organization that I love that's also up in your area, Trade is One, has they're going to a whole new, they're only going to be selling consumable fair trade goods. Uh, from rice to olive oil to chocolate, you, you name it, those kind of consumable things that are fair trade certified. So using your purchasing power, pausing at the point of purchase and thinking, do I need it? Is, this so, is there a reason why they're so cheap? I mean, half the time now I just kind of, I, I, is, there, is there a reason why this is so cheap? Asking those questions. And if we don't know, if it isn't fair trade, then Asking the companies directly, and that's where slavery, slavery footprint is a great resource. Well, it's ironic because we've seen, for example, with Apple, many of the Apple products that we yeah. see coming out of communist China are being made with slave labor, or certainly in circumstances, conditions, and at, at wages that we would look at from any uh, first world viewpoint and say, well, that's deplorable, that's horrific. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Apple because, um, as from what I know, and I've surely don't claim to be the expert expert. I'm just, I'm, I, I like to say I'm just a mom, but I've done a lot of reading. Um, but the um, Apple went ahead and uh, was very, very candid, saying, do an audit on our company. We want to know. We want to know where things are made and how things are made. We want a clean supply chain. So they were actually one of the first uh, um, what am I thinking of? The, the first computer companies that who had said, electronic companies who had said, we want a clean supply chain op- and, and open themselves up to a third-party audit. And that is a new thing. And more and more, hopefully with enough public pressure, more and more companies will look at that as an example. And so rather than saying, oh, no, we might, because more than likely they, they do, is to saying we want to know. Because oftentimes they don't know. They they trust the people that they're hiring to, you know, overseas. And there's, 
you know, the minerals have gone through a variety of transits, and it can be tricky to find out, but not impossible. And so I think by public pressure and asking those questions, that'll put enough, um, with enough people caring about it and asking for that, will, re- will become a, p- a public pressure that more and more companies will begin to want to have clean supply chains. So I think we have purchasing power. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think we, we, have, we all have relationship power and influence power, right? So we have people in our lives, in our ordinary lives, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's people we go to church with, whether it's our bosses, our employees, our schools, PTA. I mean, anyone who is working with kids, who is um, working in any kind of industry, there's all kinds of people we can have conversations with about it. Education is a huge piece. The hotline number that you mentioned, perfect. I mean, paying attention to what's going around us is, I think, half of it. Because oftentimes we go on as business as usual, keep to the grind, get in our car, go to the next spot, and we don't, we're not asking the questions, we're not get, building relationships, we're picking up our clothes at the dry cleaner. Do we look at the person in the eye? How are you? When we get our nails done, are we asking for the same person and building a relationship with the person that's doing our nails? Because that is where we're going to begin to see, um, and possibly, who around us when are some red flags? Well, and at the end of the day, I think, as the title of your book suggests, look, this is a problem that's going on worldwide. People in the first world are benefiting from this, willingly, wittingly, or otherwise. It's not right. We need to do something aggressively to stop it. And we ought to be asking these questions, as Kimberly suggests, and then, most importantly, taking a proactive approach to doing something about it. Again, a great way to get educated. Check out slaveryfootprint.org. That's slaveryfootprint.org. And if you're interested more in this topic, a wonderful book, newly published by InterVarsity Press Crescendo, called simply Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And our thanks to its uh, co-author, and by the way, uh, we also should mention the founder of the San Clemente Abolitionist Mamas. I love that title. Uh, Kimberly McOwen Yim. Kimberly, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, particularly in terms of a, a diagnosis of clinical depression where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a, a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, Joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. 
Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and I think ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods, that and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I I I think that I I'm a person who. Um, uh, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very uh, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non-traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, had started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays, and uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Ashelman, and we began doing comedy together, and then and started working with biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story, not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Um, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out. How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you make this, what it would, from an outsider, it appear to be just 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor again, not the ha ha. Let's make fun of it, uh, poke fun at it rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just—it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. Well, I think at one level, it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. Initially. I guess not. Huh? Uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of of struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction, too. I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense, um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we're supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment, uh, you, you have empathy, uh, you care about another person, that's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story, stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it easier to, to see other 
perspectives too. And I asked that question, Ted, because let's face it: when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not, and you're yeah, attempting to convince yeah. the audience that you you are this person whom you're not really. Yeah. And when you absolutely. get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church? No, that's not exactly what I'm called to do. <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor, uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person. Uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And and that is why we connect to people that, that we feel like are good actors, because we can feel them being completely honest. So to uh, be completely... To be, to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Uh, you, you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and, and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yeah. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing to, to be thoroughly convincing. And I'm wondering, did, did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense out of um, the, the, the horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that um, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn, I think, to, to, to acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's, you know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together. They know that there's certain tensions on, on, what, on what that means. And um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you, need, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spent more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. <laughs> Um, so um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You, you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to, life has to be lived, and um, everything can't stop around... Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run, his wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so, yes, that, that's very much the case, uh, that it was helpful. But I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that. And, um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're, you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's not as easy as it might 
seem to be when we say, well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes. This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it there's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that that made. Um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times. I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to 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 try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what Lee would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do it, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year, when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to get myself motivated uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a, a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbs to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to an, uh, one extreme, uh, to, to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the, the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner, Lee, struggling with a clinical diagnosis of of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was it was the kind that um, well, I describe it at one times. It's it's the uh, it's the constant companion. It's the monster that hides not just under the bed but around every corner. It's it's part of uh, part of every day. It's part of um, it's, uh, I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it, it, it's hard to um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that, that you seem to, to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication, and therapy. Um, but that can, uh, most of those have, uh, at least at some level, um, 
medication, I mean side effects that affect also uh, who you are as a person, and, and it, uh, it it can be frustrating because you don't think you, you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um, for some, it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it, it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in, 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 in being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, and I think it's a, uh, it's a horrific, um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake, uh, a misnomer about, about what it is. How, um, how did you discover, how did you first find out about Lee's passing? Well, it, in, in, many, in many cases, apparently, uh, in young men in their early, uh, early to mid-20s, it can, it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was 23, and uh, so there were certain, certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full-time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of, of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young, four, four, two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that. So it wasn't until Lee and I began. Uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as, as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface. And um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors or we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be... Uh, Something that that with yo-yo, the manic manic parts were were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was a, he was a visual artist and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a twenty to thirty year of struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high. And, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I felt like I've experienced with Lee. And, um, it, 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 at the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the previous 10 to 15 years. Um, and, you know, we often hear that, that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they, I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah. yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the, the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. and had a wonderful time. Three, it was guys' night out. We, we had a, a great time. And then the next, that morning, uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night, and we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say he was, he was uh, anxious. Um, that, that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different. And, um, you know, in, in, 
in almost 20 years on the road, we missed um, one show for a snowstorm and um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, con- contuted my arm uh, on the edge of the stage. But in 20 years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show um, for this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Uh, With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book, Laughter is Sacred Space, and newly published, by the way. And uh, you can, of course, uh, order a copy through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And, uh, Ted, is the book available also on your website? It is, TedAndCompany.com. And company all spelled out. Correct. The and and company all spelled out. Ted, I'm curious. How did you get word of Lee's decision uh, I was making supper, and uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor, uh, and it's not somebody you, are not, you know, it's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said, um, the words, is someone with you? And those are never good words oh. to hear. And uh, said, you need to come over. Um, it didn't tell me exactly why, but it, it didn't take a lot of imagination to to uh, figure that out. In the moment, so, we say we're shocked, we're surprised. But thinking back on it, is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming? I, I think the words I used, and I, and I think a number of other people used the same words for similar situation, is you're you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Um, it's those kind of those kinds of issues that. Um, um, that I think anyone who's, who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's that's a good way to describe it, yeah. On the back side, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the, gee, what, should I, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind and, and we, we struggle with. But then as we try to make sense of it all we try to find the uh what do you say the the proverbial silver lining in this cloud yeah. things of that sort uh, i have started to uh be in conversation with a young man of a similar age that lee was who is struggling with a similar issue he's very talented he's not an actor but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um video aspect of it again and i think it's to be there to be listening as much as possible to be empathetic as much as possible to encourage them to see professional help uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, regimen that that you listened uh, that you listen and uh, what, what happens many times is, is especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my, my well-being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle and we uh, and it sometimes um, they go off medication. Um, that that can be very dangerous. Um, that's often a trigger point um, for uh, a deeper crash, um, which um, can have 
similar results. Not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my. Um, I think what I've, what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that uh, the depth of, of, of care and the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, um, you can you can be there as much as you as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you you just can't fix. Um, no no amount of talking or listening that I that I could do would change that. Um, And, and, and what you've said, I think there's perhaps significant, because so often we get into the, well, if I just said this or somehow, that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. This is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time sort of, uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life, and uh, one, or, one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much <laughs> much deeper than that and 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 maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh is 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 really torturing ourselves at a level isn't it i think it is and that's that's the one thing that i continue to uh to struggle with i actually talked to another another um radio station this this morning um, uh, and I've started, I, I've written a, a, a one-man show based on the book, um, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is the relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together and, and, uh, and his suicide and what that meant. And that um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but uh, mourning is, uh, the act of mourning is, a, is, is just that, an action. You choose to mourn, you choose to do the things that are self-care. Um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up, and um, it it and and I I say in the play that I, I made the uh, the sarcastically a brilliant I say it sarcastically a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn, but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as, a, as an acting company, and then to fight the grief. And the ways that we fight the grief sometimes is, not always, but sometimes is to deny, deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much, that it didn't matter that much. It's the way that we try and protect ourselves. And it's a coping it's, mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind the couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do. Does this also for change you? To, does it force you to become more forward-looking? And by that, I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing. 
well, there was a suicide in my family many years ago, and boy, the amount of time that, that many of us spent on all the what-ifs and gee whizzes yeah. and so forth, and yet I think instead of, you know, while there is a time of mourning and certainly the time of grief, then yeah. to say, okay, instead of channeling our en- energies into what we can never change because it's done, what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive, more caring, more empathetic, put more into life, get more out of it, and, 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 and maybe make, make things better for somebody else, if not for them, for somebody else? I think that's, I think that's a, a great sentiment. It is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up, and I think, um, I can't speak freely, obviously, but I think that's where he would want, want me to be. Um, I, I, I think what, what, what truncated my, my, my recovery, uh, and healing out of that is I, um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. Um, part of that, part of what happened when he died, it's not simply losing a friend, it was losing the business as well. So if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence, um, recreate, uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years, and 10 shows in three years, um, to, to create a new identity, to create a new brand because, um, most people that knew us as a company assumed that the, that the company was gone. And so it was coupled. It, it wasn't just losing my best friend. It was losing, um, it was losing a source of income. It was losing, uh, I, you know, all the inventory, as it were, uh, was intellectual material that was uh, stuck in our heads. That was the inventory. Um, so uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's very little that can happen in moving um, moving back, but it's, it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful um, piece that, that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that that is easy to hang on to um and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward and a combination of guilt and anger boy it just keeps you spinning yeah and can be terribly uh paralyzing too in the end game ted we appreciate the time and the candor today i know it's a a painful topic to uh, to relive in a sense and yet out of your pain and your your insights you offer us uh oddly enough a lot of the pastoral care that you set out to to prepare yourself to do in the first place. Isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle? Ted Schwartz, Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. And the new book, as we mentioned, is newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at tedandcompany.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.